Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Amplify. The topic for today is coronavirus. There's been much in the media and from the CDC and the World Health Organization about the spread of coronavirus. There are certainly more questions than answers at this point, but if you haven't already done so, I highly recommend that you download your free copy of Emergency Medicine Practice's special report on coronavirus. Today, we're sitting down with both authors of the article, Dr. Al Giwa and Dr. Akash Desai. My name is Al Giwa. I uh, am an attending at the Mount Sinai Hospital, faculty at the Icon School of Medicine. Uh, my name is Akash Desai. I'm a second year emergency medicine resident at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thanks to you both for joining us today. There's a lot of information out there about coronavirus, and it is literally changing on a daily basis from the CDC and the World Health Organization. So let's start with a few basic things. How about we begin with why coronaviruses are something we should even pay attention to? Why should we care? Well, um, coronaviruses are pretty prevalent. Um, they start started off in the mammalian vertebrate species, most notably birds and other smaller mammals, and some have spread into the human population. Why we care is because they have in recent years um, crossing over from other animal species, now infecting humans have led to serious diseases. We have seen in the last three decades counting this one, three novel forms of coronavirus emerge. And I think many people are familiar with the previous two novel forms being the SARS and the MERS epi uh, epidemics, uh, outbreaks that occurred. And uh, we, we hear that and don't often associate it with the family of viruses known as coronaviruses, but in fact, they are in the same family. Now, when we talk about these things starting in mammals and spreading to humans or this zoonotic transmission, what exactly does that mean? The current line of thought among uh, you know, biologists and uh, virologists that study this virus is that the coronavirus family evolved in bats. And this is done through genomic analyses of the virus and of the viruses that infect bats. They do genomic analyses that show a great depth and, and diversity of coronaviruses in bat populations. And the evidence suggests that when tra being transmitted to humans, it often travels through an intermediary host that humans have more uh, interaction with. And so in the case of coronavirus, it's so new, there's not really uh, strong evidence to, to, to pin down what exactly happened. But the thought is zoonotic transmission from bats, again, either to humans through an intermediary host or directly to humans. Um, there's been some recent data published that didn't make it into the paper that shows a lot of um, similarities in the genomes doing similar genomic analyses in pangolins, uh, which are this kind of armadillo-like animal that are actually endangered and endemic to the region, uh, to the region of China. Um, they may be a culprit. Now, I don't wanna call out pangolins because they're endangered already, but, but there is some data to suggest that this, this could be the intermediary host early data. Now, SARS and MERS, were different than previous versions of coronaviruses we had encountered in humans, right? More virulent? 
Correct. Um, previous uh, coronaviruses um, were pretty benign. Um, the few that did cross over to infect humans. Um, and as you said, the SARS and MERS variants were more virulent and hence the beginning of this new worry about coronavirus. Coronaviruses were generally not worried about um, because they created very benign disease presentations in humans. And primarily that's things like colds, upper respiratory infections, runny nose, congestion, cough. Those are the kinds of symptoms we'd expect to see from coronaviruses, at least in the early forms of these viruses, right? That is absolutely correct. Now, in your article, you discussed a value called r naught, which is relevant to epidemiology. Can you explain to me what that is exactly? So in epidemiology, r naught is uh, it's a little heavy, but it is the basic reproduction number. And you can kind of think of it as the expected number of cases that are genera generated directly by one case in your population. You know, where basically in, for example, in the city of New York, in this area that is susceptible to infection, it would be the expected number of cases generated by that one case. So how that spread from that one entity that originally has the disease that we're looking at and how it can spread into the population. And for this particular strain of coronavirus that we believe stemmed from Wuhan, China, what is that r naught value? So the r naught value is about 2.2. And that's with a, about a 90% high density interval, 1.4 to, to 3.8. So it comes to about 2.2. Okay, so that means your typical person infected with coronavirus is going to infect 2.2 to other people. And how does that compare to, say, SARS or MERS? Well, it compares currently very similarly to pandemic flu, actually, um, and more to SARS than MERS, but it's mimicking greatly the pandemic influenza um, are not value. And since you brought up pandemic influenza, when we talk about coronavirus and all of the attention it's garnering in the media and all of the anxiety and even some panic that it's causing, why exactly, if coronaviruses just cause upper respiratory infections and cold symptoms, is there so much concern about this particular coronavirus strain versus influenza in general, for example? Well, I mean, there's so many reasons. I think partly it's something new, it's something foreign, at least here in the US, it's this foreign disease. We've heard of these foreign diseases that come and infect us and kill people. Um, obviously there's a lot of misinformation with that. Um, when we actually look at the numbers and I think why so many people are trying to get everyone to relax, it's because the experts are looking at this from you know, a very high level, and they're seeing flu, influenza, for example, in pandemic form, infects millions of people worldwide, millions. And it kills very few of them. But obviously, the burden, the, the, the hospitalizations and the 
illness burden, as the CDC states, is much higher. The cost of influenza is much higher, um, obviously, with people who lost work, lost wages, hospitalization costs, et cetera, et cetera, um, versus COVID-19 currently is at an infection rate of, uh, I think the latest data today, March 5th, is in the 80,000 range um, versus millions of people who will have influenza worldwide. Um, so there's magnitude of almost thousands different, or hundreds rather different between the two. So we're not at pandemic levels quite yet with COVID. Um, yet today, who knows what tomorrow or next week will bring. But right now, influenza is a bigger worry. It is a more pandemic, i.e. spread throughout the world. Um, the likelihood of you and I getting influenza is much higher than, well, maybe not me, since I had took care of probably eight people last night who were without COVID. But generally speaking, your average person down the street um, is going to get the flu over coronavirus, at least this worrying novel 2019 coronavirus. The, the lens with which we view influenza, for example, you know, it's, its mortality rate is lower than all of these novel coronaviruses, but its annual influenza epidemics roll around the world and infect millions and millions of people, cause hundreds of thousands of deaths, and would outpace the mortality of all three of these in taking in sheer numbers of, of, of human cost, but um, its actual mortality case by case is, is lower. And so, so this is, we, we, it's hard to speak about just a mortality rate without also speaking about its, its virulence and, and its epidemiological impact. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit more. Do you think there's concern that there is more lethality to coronavirus or COVID-19 versus the previous versions or even influenza? Or do you think this state of anxiety is really just because it's new or novel? So it's a little, um, it's not an apples to apple comparison. Um, so you have to kind of tease it out a little differently. As I mentioned, there are millions of influenza cases. There are only 80,000 approximately um, COVID-19 cases. The fatality rate of influenza is around 0.13 to 0.17, um, whereas currently we're in that 2 to 4% range. So on a percentage basis, yes, COVID-19 is killing more people but it's infecting a lot less people than influenza. So um, looking at US data of influenza, there are going to be upwards of 60 or however many, um, I don't even wanna throw out a number right now, but um, there are several hundreds of thousands of people who will get influenza. And so that cost burden will be a lot larger from a healthcare perspective in the treatment and the lost wages for confirmed or influenza-like illness presentations. COVID, at least from, a, from the point of treatment, because right now there's a lot of paranoia in it, there's a lot of pre, um, there's this angst 
before you even get it that is causing people to sort of disrupt the economy in not the best way. And so those costs associated with COVID are all before people are even being infected. But the bottom line is there are only 80,000 people worldwide with COVID. And looking at the US, I don't think we have a thousand yet. And so thousand to a hundred thousand of the influenza, the cost burden of COVID is a lot less from a treatment perspective. But the media surrounding COVID clearly makes it uh, what, what generates the fear and everything we're kind of living through right now. Okay, so let's shift gears for a second. We know that we have a novel virus spreading through the globe, and organizations like the CDC, the World Health Organization, and countries on a government level are looking to try and curtail this spread and to prevent pandemics. So what tools do we have at our disposal? Uh, Obviously, I think stage one we've seen an example of in China is containment. Is that right? Well, this this comes to the discussion of, uh, you, you know, often when having discussions of curtailing pandemics, and this is going to present a real problem to the West in a way that may be less of a problem in, in a country like China. And this is a, a bit of a tricky conversation because it often co- coincides with the curtailing of personal individual freedoms. Um, when we look back at past pandemics, for example, the 1918 flu, um, there was huge, a uh, huge mobilization of public health resources and 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 from places of power really to tell people what they could and could no longer do. I think the next step that the CDC could make, and uh, but, but will be really difficult to make in a country like America where we value our personal freedom so so highly and our our, our autonomy as individuals is to say that you can no longer gather in large groups. You can no longer you know almost even go outside. And I don't think that our, our fervor has reached that point yet. And um, it, it may never, it, it, but it's so hard to hit a moving target and know what's right because you do the wrong thing. You look at, you know, in hindsight, it's looked at as negligent. And if you, if you go too far in hindsight, you look, you're looked at as paranoid and, and causing a stir where there isn't one. So. Okay. So that's the containment or isolation option to try and keep it from spreading. What other tools do we have at our disposal? Yeah, so if we can contain through isolation or quarantine if need be, um, then we can try to treat symptomatic issues that come that are associated with um, coronavirus infections, namely the pneumonias that resolved, etc. Um, unfortunately, to date, we do not have a directed treatment towards coronavirus. Um, Vaccines um, are in development. Um, that is a future-looking um, combatment of this um, disease. We don't have that to date. Um, so really, that's why the containment um, and preventative measures are probably the most important right now. And I would just stress that things like hand-washing, um, as the CDC, I believe, has stressed, the general public does not need to be walking around with masks. Um, you're just going to look funny, and it's not going to really prevent you from getting this disease if you come in contact with it. Hand washing is a lot more useful for the general public 
um, and even healthcare workers um, than just having a mask. It's not purely a droplet or airborne disease. There is a reported fecal oral um, component to it and its survivability on surfaces is proving to be much longer than they expected. So people who are exposed, who are sitting places, touching places, that is how you're getting it, not necessarily from breathing it in. Okay, and part of combating the virus or not infecting ourselves is knowing how it's spread. So you mentioned fecal-oral transmission. Tell me what that is. So there are a lot of reported ways. Um, there are some reports from the Chinese CDC um, and some of the buildings they studied early on in their epidemic of the COVID-19, whereby faulty sewage lines um, were aerosolizing, micro aerosolizing fecal material into the apartments or rather from the apartments of the infected into the apartments of the uninfected and hence causing spread of disease and infecting those um, without direct contact. So again, these are people in let's say floor five in the building um, due to faulty plumbing, people downstairs on the second floor when floor five flushed their toilet, little micro droplets from the toilet, from the sewage line would spread into floor two's apartment and they would actually get in contact with that. That was one reported manner that um, the fecal oral, um, or at least the fecal in that case, and where we saw that there was a shedding of virus and feces. Another is through direct, so people who were asymptomatic and who just in touching their mouth and touching surfaces were spreading disease that, again, they did not know they had to others who would then develop symptoms. And then when public health and virologists would backtrack and test all contacts, they would find these asymptomatic people who actually had it. And again, without symptoms and i.e. not coughing, not sneezing, not doing anything um, respiratorily to shed that virus, your hand contact to your body is usually from your mouth and your personal hygiene things. And unfortunately, humans are just not 100%. There are not many of us who are timing our hand washing to 20 seconds um, after we use the facilities, our restroom, for example. Okay, so that's the fecal-oral transmission, but we've heard about airborne and droplet transmission as well. So tell me about that distinction. Okay, so airborne transmission is basically when whatever viral or infectious agent we're talking about um, is carried in the air, you know, suspended in the air. Um, you know, droplet really requires some intervention of, in our case, humans, right? So a coughing, a, um, some expulsion of the infectious material within our lungs, mouth, nose, respiratory tract and tree, um, and bringing that forth, and hence those droplets from our pulmonary system um, 
then become aerosolized um, and hence where the preventative measure that helps with um, droplet issues, the mask, for example, so sneezing into one's sleeve, not one's hand, that will decrease those droplets from entering into the air. Again, airborne would be something that is just there, it's suspended, um, it's staying there, almost independent necessarily of what, uh, whether you're coughing or having any symptoms at, at that moment. So we could characterize airborne transmission as the actual infectious particle itself being out there in the air, like in tuberculosis, versus droplet transmission being where someone is coughing up some actual moisture, some droplets of fluid in which the infectious particle is contained. So that transmission requires there to be a droplet that carries it from one person to another, as opposed to just the infectious particle by itself being out there in the air. And that begins to matter when organizations like the CDC have to make recommendations for the general public. For example, they've been very vocal about the fact that the routine public does not need to wear a surgical mask and that the only people who they recommend being masked would be those who are sick. And that's because the purpose of the mask in that scenario is actually to trap these droplet particles and keep them from spreading to others and contaminating surfaces. And that if you're not sick, you don't need the mask to prevent these droplets from coming out of you, essentially. They're trying to keep them from coming out of the people who are sick. That is absolutely correct. And then there's the recommendation for healthcare workers. Now, this is beginning to be a little varied. The nuances are different between the CDC and the World Health Organization about what healthcare professionals should be wearing to protect themselves. So the World Health Organization states that a healthcare worker just taking care of a COVID-19 patient can get away with just a surgical mask for droplet precautions, but in the case of performing some kind of invasive procedure where aerosolization is likely, uh, like intubation or BiPAP therapy or bronchoscopy, that the healthcare worker should be wearing an N95 mask. And the CDC standard is a little different in this scenario. Specifically, they recommend the N95 mask for the routine health worker and then something like a PAPR or a powered air purifying respirator, or this is the helmet now with the actual clip-on respirator that is worn for the more invasive and aerosolizing procedures. That is correct. Okay, so we've hit the history of the virus, and we've talked about ways we can contain it and treat it, and now we've just finished talking about the personal protective gear that healthcare workers need to be equipped with. Uh, lastly, let's just touch on who to test, because that has also been a topic that has been in evolution with the CDC. So um, at the time of the publication of this, uh, of, our, of our article, the CDC's guidelines had changed drastically from being um, a focus on persons who have traveled to endemic areas. Um, recent cases have now shown that there are no contacts or direct travel to those areas, but yet 
coronavirus is appearing um, in the community, hence uh, so-called community um, spread. This has now changed how we healthcare workers are to evaluate patients um, in our um, in our healthcare settings. Um, we have to look at symptomatology, and current guidelines are stating if there is nothing by way of an influenza-like illness, specifically flu, as being the causative um, or most likely causative agent then we should now be considering coronavirus, um, specifically COVID-19, as a uh, possible infectious um, etiology. And if you're in healthcare and you have a patient that you believe needs to be tested, then the next question that's going to occur if you're not already in the emergency department working is, where can this patient go to get tested? How do you go from, I have a patient with suspicion to I have some samples that I need to get to someone? Now, in most areas, there are some protocols that involve the Department of Health and notification of the Department of Health and then isolation or quarantine of the patient. And then from there, they usually take the ball as far as testing is considered. Uh, and they will decide if the patient qualifies for testing. But now, more recently, there has been the emergence of testing that's not conducted through governmental channels. So testing outside of the Department of Health and the CDC testing requirements, uh, the test is starting to become more readily available to physicians to use at their discretion. It's not widespread yet, but it's getting there. And so the next question is going to be, what do you do with a patient that you want to get tested? As an ER doctor, um, I'm going to say that it is not always the wisest uh, recommendation to tell everybody, um, all comers, to go to an ER, especially in the environment that we're in now, in an era that we're in, rather, whereby social media and media, traditional media outlets, um, rumor mills, etc., are creating such a mass hysteria in people, I think the worried well will potentially um, flood ERs and clinics and other urgent care and other areas unnecessarily, and ironically, potentially putting themselves at increased risk of exposure when the one true coronavirus patient actually comes in and potentially exposes people. So I'm not sure that that guidance is always the best. I would say if there is concern and you are now this person under investigation, a home-based um, self-quarantine, self-isolation is best. Um, that will allow you to a self-monitor and to keep others away from your potential illness. Most importantly, I think, um, the recommendations really should be if you are not of a certain category of illness, i.e. severity level, then like most viral illnesses, you can treat this at home. Just because of the nature of this illness and because we don't have a treatment or a vaccination, I think the recommended self-quarantine is best for the mild cases. Obviously, if you are now the person who has multiple comorbidities, 
and or your disease burden is such that you are having such severe symptomatology, I think those are the people who should be directed to a hospital and ER environment, whereas everyone else should be at home and expect pretty mild, short-lived symptoms for the most part for the healthy general public. Telling people who, who have no other underlying disease, who are, don't, haven't mounted a fever, who are dealing with some of the common symptoms with, that come with a common cold, to, to recognize that they, that they may not need to panic um, while also not trying to discourage the necessary diagnosis of actually infected people. And um, so telehealth will be big. I think when it comes to coming to the ER, if you're having severe respiratory distress, if, you're having, uh, if you've mounted a fever and are having respiratory symptoms, you should go to the ER. You should make sure that the ER knows you are coming in any way possible by telling EMS, if you decide to call EMS, in triage, letting them know any travel history up front. Training your triage nurses to ask about travel history as, as a matter of uh, protocol. Having vital signs dictate the way in which people are triaged and the way in which they are kept in the emergency room. Anyone with a fever should be, should be masked, should be kept in a, in a certain place um, away from other, other patients. And a blood test can be drawn. A simple evaluation, a, a workup can be done with, with simple blood tests and a chest x-ray to rule out any bacterial disease. And if this person look, is not tachypnic, is not looking like they're, they're not going to make it on their own, you get some good contact information and tell them for the next foreseeable future until we have this test back, don't, don't see your friends, don't go out, call in sick and we'll, and we'll get back to you. And the DOH is doing a good job of following these cases and, and ensuring to, to allow the people to self-quarantine. Um, for, for us to start quarantining everyone with, with a cough, it, it's, it's not feasible and it's, it's not reasonable. And so we have to find that middle ground of who is well, who isn't, and quarantining those that are mounting fevers, who are having respiratory distress, and, and, um, and, and pressing forward that way. Great. And I just want to say thanks again to you, Dr. Giwa, and you, Dr. Desai, for taking the time to put together this outstanding article. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to download the article. It's got links to all of the primary sources, and those are constantly being updated. So the CDC recommendations are changing on a daily basis, literally. And we have gone from screening people from certain countries to screening people in certain situations to just screening people in general. And laboratory kits started out being available only with the CDC and then regionally through health departments and now are becoming more readily available. So things change on a daily basis. Anything you two would like to add? Um, don't blame the pangolins. Uh <laughs> Don't have uh, We'll end with that. Well, thank you, Doctors Desai and Dr. Giwa, for putting together that outstanding issue. Again, if you're listening, I highly encourage you to log on to ebmedicine.net and take a look at the free issue on COVID-19. There is an outstanding table, uh, table number three, listed as helpful resources for COVID-19, which has links to the CDC, the World Health Organization 
to Johns Hopkins University Global Case Tracker, to the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, and to the American College of Physicians and the Lancet Resource Center, uh, all readily available for you, all constantly updated. And if you're not already a subscriber, I really can't emphasize enough how much of a resource, a professional resource, EB Medicine becomes uh, right there at the bedside with your next patient. So consider becoming a subscriber. It gets you all of your CME needs and really keeps you up to date with the latest information on everything you're going to need to practice emergency medicine. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Stay safe. Stay safe.